0: Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. It's a Bitcoin podcast.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Bitcoin podcast. My name is D and I'm your first host.
2: I'm your second host, Dr. Corey Petty.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I'm the host that talks first. Um, Yeah, man, this is episode 309. Next week, next, next episode, we're getting drunk, baby. Let's have a drunk episode. Let's bring I'm it back. Drunk.
2: I think I'm still drunk from last night.
1: Well, yeah, what were you sipping on last night? Tennessee oh, Beer. That's wow. a, little a friend over, in.
2: made some pieces, listened to YouTube music videos until the very end of the night, a very loud volume.
1: Dude, that and is your head. signature hang.
2: Yeah, that's the best way to hang, is just watch music videos very, very yeah, loudly.
1: So, so audience, this, is, this has been the signature hang of Dr. Corey Petty for a near a decade now, and that is everybody get your YouTube app out get linked up to his YouTube start adding music videos in the queue and everybody sits around and gets drunk and watches great music loud eats pizza actually it's actually quite a good hang it's it's a lot of fun actually um yeah very loud music and
2: uh, turn it up and so that is mind.
1: it signature hang you should name that hang so that way people know what's going down. What's a name for that? I don't know how to name that. Music and tunes and pizza. Tunes and za. <laughs> I'm not saying tunes. <laughs> tunes. You want to come over to the crypt? And tunes and za. Not, it, I'm not you sound like that. that Live character played <laughs> by <laughs> played by uh who's who's a uh, Adam Adam Andy Samberg. Hmm. Tunes and za. All right, maybe maybe we'll uh, we'll go back to the drawing board on that naming convention. Audience,
2: come up with a better name for that, please, so I don't have to say those words ever.
1: Pizza music, piece of piece of music. No, that doesn't make any sense.
2: How do you want to do this episode? I know you got you got some things you want to dive into, and I have a technical explainer to give to people.
1: Oh yeah? I wish my soundboard wasn't broken because I would have pushed why, a button how, for your...
2: would your computer always screwed up?
1: I don't know, how, bro. Why is your soundboard I mean, broken? I don't know why computers just choose to work when they want to work around me. I don't
2: know what you're doing to them. I literally did
1: no thing and it's been frozen for a week. And I'm like, what?
2: How? Did you try to fix it or did you just stare at it being frozen and say, oh, it's broken?
1: I just unplugged it and plugged it back in several times and it's not working. Look, I'm going to do it again right now while we're talking. Because I had a noise. Well, he's going to break his computer for this episode. Cool. Watch, watch this. Well, I'm going to unplug the soundboard and my computer's going to explode and that.
2: Quality. Quality content coming at you, folks. Watch. I can't watch anything. I can only see your face.
1: I. Uh, I guess it works this time. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I guess it worked this time. I don't hear it.
2: That's like some yep, I hear that. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess it works this time. Jesus cool. Christ! So you just you just stared at it and nothing happened, and you're like, "Oh, it's broken." Okay, throw this out the window. No, no strategy. strategy. Get back that was strategy.
1: So I was like. That's what I do, Corey. I stared at it. And I was like, fix yourself, bitch. Fix yourself. <laughs> Apparently, that's what a lot of people do. So, Crisis averted. Cool. This has been Sound a phenomenal week, though. Um, yeah, I tried to explain this phenomenal week to Corey, and he was just like, yeah, whatever. Fucking God mode. We don't give a shit. We out here. Gang, gang. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, gang, damn, Corey. you that confident, huh? That's That's what you guys don't know. The CSO of status says shit like gang gang. No I'm kidding. Corey doesn't say anything like that, but you could feel <laughs> that aura coming from him. And I was like, so, so let's just talk about it. I told many, many, many moons ago, I said, what the wealthy do is go right and tell everyone to go left. And when everyone figures out going left is the wrong direction, they've already paved the road and put up the tolls. So they're going to ask you to turn around and come back and go right. And then you're going to pay for it this time. So not only do they benefit from going right first, now they're going to benefit from making everyone pay to go right. And that is they've got their greasy tentacles all up in crypto. Their greasy, greasy
2: tentacles. That's a, that's a like mental image that's not very nice.
1: Yeah, real hentai in this bitch. They've got their greasy tentacles all up in crypto. It's slimy. And by the time the general public wants to just experiment with crypto, they're getting hit with fees. They're getting hit with all kinds of things that make it seem seemingly convenient. And that's just the way the clock turns. It's like a, it's like a um, novella. That's, that's the way the world turns. And so I guess my deep talk, Corey, wanted to be around um, I don't think shit changes. I think that like humanity is humanity is humanity. And every once in a while we do a soft reset and do the exact same shit over again, just with different flavor Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. Just like the Matrix. Just like when the architect was like, you think you're the first Neo that's been in here talking that shit, bitch? Vis-a-vis, ergo, thus, likely. I'll be in the (laughs) architect. Ergo, vis a (laughs) vis, concordantly. (laughs) Um, That's what I think it is, man. I think that, like, crypto doesn't change the game like we thought it was going to. This whole decentralized notion, this whole every fair, it's not going to. There's going to be a few winners, and then everyone else is going to be basically at the whim of those few winners. It's going to be the same in Ether. It's going to be the same in Bitcoin. It's going to be the same. All right. I'd love to be wrong because right now I'm feeling real right.
2: Yeah, you're wrong. Uh, if this stuff can hold on to its ideals for a long enough period of time, um, we will rebuild all the muckety-muck that currently exists with a very <laughs> crucial with a very crucial difference. And that is the ability to opt out of it. You don't have that yet don't have that in the traditional system. You can't opt out and choose to do something else because what's available to you or what you're currently using is not aligned with your ideals or how you'd like to conduct yourself. Mm-hmm. You just, you don't have a fucking choice. You just have to use it and, and deal with it. And there's nobody that can fix that because the foundational layers suck. Uh, if we, re, if we if we if we rebuild this stuff correctly using this technology, then you will have the ability to opt out always, and have options in terms of how you conduct yourself, and mm-hmm. that'll be more personally suiting. And you, a lot of times, you won't have to trust somebody to get something done, or you don't have to assume someone's going to take care of it or be the custodian of something in order in order for you to do it. You can just do it yourself. So, like, the, for the people who care about things, they'll have the option to opt out. And for the people who don't, they'll let someone else take care of it for them. That's my opinion on where this, like, what the what the change will be if all this stuff is successful. Because you're right, the the the, the, the greasy tentacles will always be there. But as it stands today, we don't have an option to deal with the greasy tentacles or not. We just they're just they are overlords. We have to take it. We have to take what they give us. And that's not the case in the hopeful future
1: of uh, Web3. I mean, yes, when it comes to data and things of that nature, but when it comes to like the life and breath of what's keeping people going, and that is like their purchasing power, it's never going to like that the whole dream that we'll have like decentralized and democratized money that no one owns, no one, no one person owns. And it's decentralized that everyone owns a significant enough portion of it to feel sovereign. I think that is a myth. I think that is no longer going to be Because if you look at the Bitcoin addresses, there's not a significant large amount of them that have significant large amounts of Bitcoin. in them, And that stays the same through all of crypto. There's not a single crypto where the 1% of the addresses have the majority of all of the crypto of that of that currency. So what? So nothing changes. Like even if you go to proof of
2: stake. What power do they have?
1: What do you mean? That's, what the, power that's that? a big, they de- that's a big the- deal the- with like
2: distribution analysis like that. Is that like, what power do those people have? That the people who have the lesser amounts have, like I, I, an individual who owns Bitcoin and it's relevant to them, doesn't give a shit about the one percent of the people who own the majority of the Bitcoin. If it if it if it operates and works the way they want it to. It is sovereign because they control it. It's not asking someone else to handle their money for them. Like well, now, now the, gonna... the 1% has influence in terms of potential economics of the whole system, depending on what they do with their money, and influence on what gets built on the system because they're the ones probably funding the development. But that's a whole different story in terms of individual sovereignty of, of money. They don't like the 1% don't control the money supply. They don't control like how money gets minted and distributed into the ecosystem. they do in a sense of like
1: moving their own money around, but like they could eventually control the value of these things.
2: Maybe, yeah, sure, but it's, it's within their interest to keep it high. Why would they? Why would they? kill their own value
1: well the more of it they get well here's thinking slightly conspiratorial if that's even a word uh the more of it they get and the lower liquidity they allow then the more useless it becomes as a financial int- vessel If me and you had, if there were 2 million things and me and you had 1.5 million of them, and then people were like, please, we want to use your things for commerce. And we said, no, then people would naturally say, yeah, we're going to go use something else then. Because if you guys don't want this stuff to be liquid, what's the point of us using it for anything? Enjoy your fancy, shiny things.
2: That's cool. If, if If the leftover, if what remains doesn't serve the purpose. If it's I know no that. longer but, but, capable of serving the need, then that's an issue. If it serves the need, then who cares? And as it stands today, we're not overusing any of this technology, really. I mean, yeah, blocks are full. Sure. Maybe. Blocks are only full because... Bitcoin gets used. Or sorry, Ethereum gets used. That's like that. There's, there's a lot going on in the network, and it's not fake transactions like EOS. Mm-hmm.
1: Ooh, you throwing shade? Oh you're no, there's shade.
2: Like most of the larger networks are basically all like filler transactions that aren't actually anything. Oh. Ethereum is not that. BTC is not that. Bitcoin is not that.
1: I feel like only two are BTC and ETH at this point. I think Litecoin's <sighs> kind of lost them.
2: Yeah, I don't really care about Litecoin much. It's fun.
1: Litecoin's wanna- just an expensive test net this point that's all it is and so 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 jp morgan if you guys are unaware jp morgan after years and years and years of saying fuck bitcoin i ain't about that life if you get into bitcoin you're stupid if any of my traders start trading bitcoin they'll be fired just lots of words being shot by jamie Dimon, the ceo then turns out this week, J.P. Morgan says, "Yeah, we're going to go ahead and extend banking services to Bitcoin exchanges, Gemini and Coinbase, to start with, just to get our feet wet."
2: So, and all I'm saying is,
1: that, yeah, that's <laughs> so all I'm saying is that like Bitcoin and crypto are un- they are undeniable. What is it? Any one thousand X tech advance is is a winner, is a game changer. And even though if you've been in crypto long enough, you'll see a lot of infighting. Feel honored that you're a part of the infighting. Because what people, I had this argument with somebody in uh, a GPP, somebody who loves hex, by the way, which I've been arguing with too too many hex supporters.
0: I don't, and I don't, I don't he was like,
1: "Those human beings." Neither do I, man. But he was like, "I don't, I don't understand what they like about hex. I really don't." But he was like, "Bitcoin is too slow." And I was like, "How dare you? How dare anyone say that?" Okay, it takes an hour to finalize. Do people not realize it takes an average of three days for a transaction? If you go to the store right now and you swipe your card for bread, it's a three-day transaction on the back end. They've sold us the illusion that the mempool is finality. It's a three-day transaction. I I run four businesses, man. They're three-day transactions. When somebody pays us, we got to wait 72 hours before we start acting on the money. That's just the way it fucking goes. So you're telling me an hour isn't a thousand X better than three days? Fuck off! Fuck right off! If we've been if we've been <laughs> the illusion that the mempool is finality to this point, you're gonna sit here and tell me that 60 minutes is not better than four thousand two hundred minutes, four thousand three hundred twenty minutes. Suck my balls, suck them shiny, because you're full of shit. So don't stand there, don't sit there and try to tell me that Bitcoin isn't a thousand X better. I'm talking to everyone in crypto that thinks that Bitcoin isn't the shit. Bitcoin is just fine. It's all about human behavior at this point. So then take it into Ether. 13 seconds, I think. No, two minutes to get final. 13 seconds for the first block to come through, the first confirmation. So all of this shit is already thousand X better than anything a bank could hope to do because banks are too large to adapt at this point. They're too large. So they're getting their greasy tentacles and things because they've already realized they've lost. So um, you fired up today. I am fired up because like I'm t- every, every time I, listen, I see all these arguments on Twitter between you fucking goofs on Twitter talking about, <laughs> oh, meme coin. Bitcoin's a meme coin and Ether is the true. And then you've got the same thing going the other way. Bitcoin maxes are like, oh, Ether is a scam altcoin. And it's like, you guys are... Uh, you're fucking twats, all of you. You're, <laughs> the, the, the Bitcoin Maxis are twats, and the Ethereum Maxis are cunts. And, and both of you need to just shut the fuck up and build. Because from the outside looking in, all I see is some two fucking goons being stupid. Is that's all it is. You, you both have great tech. Why don't you make your communities better and shut the fuck up? So... If you do that, then the banks really don't stand a chance. If you don't do that, then the banks get more and more time to build a crystal light version of crypto and sell it to the public for billions and billions and billions of dollars. So um, that's it. I'm off my soapbox now. It's on you, Corey. I leave the mic to you. It's a powerful
2: soapbox. You have turned up today.
1: I am. God, fix your
2: microphone. I'm going to have to go back and fix this.
1: Was oh, too loud. No, it's oh, too loud. I hear myself. Did I have you turned down to like thirty? I don't know what your deal is. I don't know. what I can you also
2: do. I can also hear your neighbor think so because your microphone's turned up. What out. are you, you thinking about? I don't know. Going don't outside we, picking some weeds. Uh, anyways, anywho, let's talk about. Oh man, that's a hard hard transition to go into like a technical
1: explainer of Ethereum fees. <laughs> okay so why, why don't we so here's so let me see if i can segue when you're using crypto you had to pay fees to the miners audience that's just the way it goes because they've done their due diligence in providing hardware slash software to uh secure and propagate this network um so you pay them a fee for doing so and that fee market is completely it's like an auction right? If you're trying to get into a block, you, you need to have a high fee because the miner is going to include you into a block because the miner is just trying to make money. So they want more money. And the effect of that on humanity is fees creep higher and higher and higher as something is higher in demand because people want their transactions to be final. I don't get that. I, I don't get that at all. I would all see, I'm just weird because I was like, I would always go cheap, but I guess people are always going to go as cheap as they can.
2: Yeah, it depends on the time,
1: and that's what I don't get. It's like, why doesn't everybody just say, if everybody all at once was like, "Yeah, let's just not pay those fees," then the miners will just be like, "Well, I guess we just get new Bitcoin," and like, I don't. don't, It's just a a game that I don't quite understand as to why they always creep up and up and up. But
2: you you run the risk of miners not including your transaction, and you never it never finalizing
0: depending on the type of business
2: you want to do or transaction you want to do, that may, that may not be a feasible thing. You may need a certain time, time window for that business to conclude. And yeah. Three days. I was trying to
1: segue and you just, you just, I'm
2: going to, I'm going to, I'm going to transition from here. I can do that. That's fine. Don't worry about your (laughs) breath. Yeah, so like Bitcoin fees are one thing. I think everyone gets an idea on how those work. Basically, um, if I send you some money, I then send myself the change because you can't spend part of a UTXO. You have to spend the whole thing. And so what happens is uh, when I send money, I send it to who? I'll say I'm sending it to you. I'll send what I a fraction of that UTXO to you and the rest of it back to myself either in the same address or a new address. Uh, people tend to say new address for privacy reasons, but whatever. Um, but in that process, I'm not like all of those. If you sum up all of the destinations or outputs that I make in a transaction, they're not going to equal uh, the inputs. There's going to be some leftover. That leftover is the fee that gets that's gets, gets given to the miner. And that's how it works in Bitcoin. And somebody asked about Ethereum fees in Ethereum. So Ether fees and how those get calculated. So Bitcoin calculator basically is an open market. Uh, miners choose, as D alluded to, uh, the largest. And do that. Hold on, I'm pulling up my my notion to see who I keeping track of all of the explainers and who suggested them so we can give a shout out to them. So give me a second to pull that up. who did fee calculation. That is Andy. Andy wanted to know this, so shout out to Andy for suggesting it. Uh, We're gonna have votes. Yeah, buddy. We're gonna have votes uh, so people can kind of, the community can vote on what they want me to talk about. But yeah, so everybody gets Bitcoin. Ether's a bit different. So Ethereum is, you can think of it like a world computer that does computation and stores information, right? Mm -hmm. In order to use that, in order to use that computer, you got to pay. And what you pay is dependent upon what computation and what storage you're doing. So each individual operation, possible operation on Ethereum has an associated gas cost, right? There's this notion of gas, which you can think of as fuel, right? In order to do anything, you need fuel. And what you're doing on the Ethereum network is either computation or storage. So each individual thing, like a multiply or a store or a jump or any type any type of operation that the Ethereum virtual machine can do, has an associated price in gas. So when you use a smart contract, you send a transaction, does all have an associated cost depending on what you're doing, and that costs a certain amount of gas. And you can there's tables uh, there's a link to a more longer explanation in the in the in the uh, show notes that can help with this, but uh, you got gas based on what you're doing, and then you add all the stuff up, and that's how much you have to pay. So you have a very good idea of um, metering what's possible within a given block, and every single block in Ethereum that happens every 13 to 15 seconds, depending on the time. Uh, has a block gas limit. So, because there's only so much gas that can be consumed with every single block. And so that then dictates the amount of transactions that can fit into any given block or how many so how many transactions per block you can have. So, I want to I make a smart contract and I want to deploy it onto the network. That's going to cost quite a bit depending on how big that smart contract is. Cuz I have to upload and store a lot of information. I have to do the whole contract and bytecode and store it onto the blockchains so that people know how to use it. That's basically how you figure out the workload of any any individual transaction. And there's an ongoing kind of price movement of what how much gas costs in Ether. And that's an open market, right? That's a kind of a uh, when you, when you, when you make a transaction, you say, I'm going to send this transaction with all of the gas that I think is going to be consumed in this transaction. And then I'm going to name a price and say, here's all the gas and here's the gas price that I'm going to pay for this thing. And you multiply those together. And that ends up being the cost of your transaction. And Bitcoin miners will selectively choose, um, it's not just going to be how much money can I make? Well, it is that, but it's a balancing act of um how many transactions can I fit into this? How much money because like adding one big transaction may be less beneficial to them than adding a bunch of smaller transactions. Because when you submit a transaction, you're saying this is the maximum amount of gas that I'm willing to spend. And then the miner says, Cool, that's what they see. I'm going to pick this one. It looks like a lot of gas, but in actuality, the amount of actual computation in that transaction is significantly less. Mm -hmm. And if it's a successful transaction, so they're able to do all of it and there's leftover gas, it gets refunded back to the user. So it looks like a really expensive transaction ends up becoming not so expensive and they have to refund all that money. And so that's not a, that's not a beneficial thing for them to do. Uh, so what they have like this weird balancing act of what transactions they fit in. But say, for instance, they get, a, they get a transaction that looks small and they have to do a bunch of computation and there wasn't enough supplied gas in the first place for the transaction. Um, they say, well, this is an invalid transaction, it didn't work, but they keep the gas. So it, the, the transaction actually gets put into the blockchain, but it's just failed so that nothing actually happens. They don't make a state change, but they get to keep the gas. So That helps with people kind of griefing the system by um, throwing a bunch of transactions that are going to fail, but not having to pay for it. So people still pay for things, but they don't change the system, which is, a neat, which is kind of a, a neat way of balancing stuff there. And then it's just an open fee market in terms of what the gas price is at any given time. Another neat feature built in is that every single uh, miner, so the people who mine the blocks, when they mine the block, they have the opportunity to increase or decrease the block size the gas block limit by about almost 0.1 percent per block either up or down so if, if blocks are really full what will happen is that like there's a default block size and if no one tends to change it it'll gradually go back to that default block size but if things are really full each block will gradually get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger if the block miner if, if, if the uh, miners decide they want to keep adding it making it larger so they can add more transactions, and then once that once that demand is over, and there's not as many fees to fit into block sizes, they're just going to gradually bring it back down to its to its default size. So there's already a built-in mechanism for changing the block size that's that that changes with demand, which helps kind of reduce the 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 price the price uh, pressure when there's a lot of uh,
1: transactions going through the system. Have you looked into block weight? Like ever since SegWit was activated, like people kind of start thinking in block weight now, and the block weight effectively increases the block size because of how transactions are going into blocks now.
2: Now I haven't looked into new ways of metering, like uh, like transaction pressure in Bitcoin lately,
1: and batching transactions essentially effectively. See, that's the thing I think. Those are the main two camps in Bitcoin now. As people think that just block size is a, is an end all be all, and then some people don't. And then I saw that this week you said there was you got kind of aggravated this week as you said Blockstream has now, but Blockstream is of the camp that there can be a block efficiency and there's block weight and there's batching transactions and all kinds of things that effectively increase the throughput of Bitcoin. Yeah, that's if all true. Used.
2: That's certainly true. I, efficiency is a very big deal. There's, there's, there's a few different ways in which you can kind of grow the network capacity. You can increase the, the size of the container in which you try and fit things in, which is the block size for Bitcoin. You could make the block size bigger so you can fit more transactions in them. Or you could make each transaction smaller so you can fit more transactions in the same size container. And these all have different trade-offs, or you could do both. I and mean, that's usually the whole concept is to do both. And so uh, what SegWit was was mostly making transactions more efficient and more orderly and smaller, because you were taking the witness out and putting it into a separate structure, which drastically increased the efficiency of the of the one megabyte block size, which is kind of an arbitrary arbitrary size now because like what you're passing around and for a block is, is much larger than that. It's just like the canonical part, the part that goes into the blockchain is only one, it's only a maximum of one megabyte. It's all muckety muck. But like, no, what I was talking about with Blockstream is just like this. Like it's, it's, it's such a shit show, man. Like Bitcoin.org is now tired of shilling Blockstream. And so it's selling itself. So like the main sites that you go for information all hate the main developer for one reason or another. <laughs> and it's a cesspool of like there's no way to get good information from an outside individual. Like, like, like what what's going on here? And and is like, we're not doing anything, but like act they're actively trying to like make liquid a thing. And as a business, it behooves them to subvert Bitcoin so that liquid can become more popular. It is, it is directly within their priority as a business to limit the functionality of Bitcoin. And considering that's a good portion of where Bitcoin development comes from, it's just sketchy. It just, it just looks sketchy. And most informational sources that people would go to to try and learn stuff, actively feel that way, and are trying to opt out of the system. And so when people like look up Bitcoin, go to Bitcoin.com or Bitcoin.org, they're gonna get competing information, and most of it's gonna be like infighting and misinformation or whatever. And it's just it's just stupid and bad. That you can't yeah. grow the world money like that. That's that's the you human, can't. that's the human problem you were talking about earlier. Like the technology, sure, it's working, it's doing its job. It's 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 somewhat indifferent, but there's a like this technology is 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 solely dedicated on having a network of people of humans work together with the same ideas. Yeah, like that's why I said earlier, like blockchains are social networks. Period. They don't have any value unless there's people behind them all agreeing on something. I agree. That's and that's it looks, the part. It looks shitty for Bitcoin. It just looks stupid. Like that, that's why I don't like Bitcoin mostly. That's my that's my main problem is the community.
1: My main problem is that the I'm a, I call myself a recovering rabbit hole addict is that now that I'm on now that I'm very comfortably on the GPP side of things whenever I do dive back in Just to kind of like, oh, what's the pulse of things going on here? It's just the fighting is so, the infighting is so stupid and it doesn't make any sense. Because I know that people just wanted to make, people just wanted to work. They don't care about how it works. Very few people when they're like, oh, Bitcoin, how does that work? Why don't you tell me, please tell me about SHA-256 encryption algorithms, please. And I'm like... Yeah, like the, the explainer that I
2: just gave, no one gives a shit about. Most people.
1: Yeah, most people don't. Our audience does. This is why we love our audience. You like want to stop how, cheering like- them on? please? <laughs> All right. Most people, <laughs> people do care. Um, sorry, most people in our community do, do oh, care. Oh, for sure. right, why- We love that. Our amazing community. If you've been into crypto for any longer than the shake of a dog's hot leg... Then you and you're listening to this podcast. You're likely to want to join the Bitcoin Podcast Slack at the bitcoinpodcast.com Press the button Slack and join up, man. There's there's people in there talking about crypto all day, every day, um, and other things too. We are human. Um, you'll get to witness typing competitions between Corey and Jesse, the man broke. Uh, you'll also get to witness Jesse and I bumble through learning how to build our own Ethereum token to sell pre workout. So that's going to be a thing. Uh, <laughs> those are good, by the way. I like those. The boost blocks. Uh, so we, uh, yeah, we're stumbling through a lot of things. Uh, people are seeming to like um, what the headers, uh, the Bitcoin adventure into learning Bitcoin from the ground up. I believe we just talked about nunces in the last episode and what a nunce is and why it's so st- so important to the composition of the bitcoin blockchain um we keep giving shout outs to greg walker uh he's loving it greg walker makes learn me a bitcoin uh i tried to get him to make learn me an ether and he said i have no interest in doing that i was like damn it would help a lot uh but he said no so, other than that, <laughs> oh yeah. So, filming in the
2: Slack, as I'm, as we're recording this, has uh, had some additional requests on top of ETH fees for me to explain. If you'd like, I can go back into that.
1: Yeah. So, I like I like your technical explainers. We need to get like a sa- an actual soundbite for your technical explainer.
2: Yeah, like a like a like a uh, a sound swipe that's like. You know, and now the Bitcoin technical explainers with Corey. Like something stupid like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. Give me something like that. Give me something good. That was good. That was a good start. I just gave it to you. We'll figure it out. Take
2: two. We'll, we'll, no, I'm not doing it.
1: I can't yeah. I, I'm not a monkey. I'm not your monkey. Let's get technical. Oh yeah. <laughs> that good? Yeah, that'll work. Uh, so JT.
2: After I had told people what I'm going to talk about in the select JT has um, asked the three following questions. Do you know how much gas something needs or is it variable? How does my gas allowance in the transaction relate to gas use? What is the formula for actual cost I end up paying? Uh, I don't know the exact answer for two and three right now in terms of like gas allowance and the t- transaction relate. Uh, I think... Well, I kind of do. I've an intuition there. But the first one, uh, do you know how much gas something needs or is it variable? Uh, you will know how much something costs, like how much gas something needs. Let me be more explicit here. Um, based on what that transaction is going to do, what state changes is going to happen, what computation is going to be done, and potential state changes, so like what's stored, what gets moved, what gets removed. Um In the transaction. So you can see how much gas is going to be consumed. So the fuel you're going to consume when you, like say for instance, if you're driving somewhere, you know how much fuel you're going to use, basically if you know the uh, fuel efficiency of your vehicle, right? What you don't know is the gas price. That's variable. So you always know how much gas is going to be consumed, but you have to kind of estimate the price. And so that's where... It goes back and forth, and typically you try and you you always want to overestimate the gas consumption because it gets refunded back to you. So that's the difference between uh, gas allowance and, and and like the gas used. You're allowing a specific amount to be used, and you send that with the transaction, and the transaction only uses a portion of that, and refunds the rest. And the formula is in the yellow paper, right? You can you can look that up. I'll, well, that'll be added into the the show notes.
1: Is there a futures market for gas?
2: Yeah. You can actually in some like they have certain things, um, like the, they have a gas token. There's it's really cool things you can do with meta transactions and, and gas, and you can you can essentially you can buy gas when it's low, and then use it later when like the network is full and expensive. So you can like yeah, kind of hoard gas in some in some ways. Yeah, market. Yeah, you can do that. That that exists.
1: Yeah, I had a. I had a client last year who did heating oil and he had to buy actual oil and that's what he used as a futures market is he buy oil while it was low and by the time he was banking on by the time people actually needed the heating oil the price of oil had gone up so he'd actually make more profit you see what I'm saying so he actually used the futures market Um, so he would basically hoard gas all year and try to sell it at a higher price than when he bought it so uh, but anyway, he, neither here nor there. We're um, going to the interview. Interview is a newsletter writer. His name Ian Kair from FinTech Today. So, so he is the founder of FinTech Today newsletter. It covers financial news primarily in the the fintech space, quite obviously, um, and. Yeah, I mean, fintech news is his thing. So he was a uh, head of product, and I learned what that means, which is basically the translator between the engineers and the GPPs. That's what he kind of high-level defined it as. And he's been the head of product for some very large companies, and now he runs a newsletter that's gaining momentum. And he wanted to come on the show to talk about it. so. Here it is, and hello everyone. Uh, you know what time it is. After that transition, it is time for another one of the Bitcoin Podcasts interviews. Uh, and this week we bring to you uh, our guest, uh, Mr. Ian Carr from Fintech Today. How you doing, Ian?
0: Hey, man. How's it going? Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, right, no problem, man. So uh you've been on podcasts before, I reckon.
0: Yep. Yep. A couple.
1: You, you've been on podcasts this awesome before.
0: Uh, I don't think so, no.
1: uh, (laughs) (laughs) Cool, man. Well, we like to start most of our interviews is pretty standard, and and that's who are you, uh, what's your background, and how did that background intermingle, crossroads with the old crypto community?
0: So, yeah, happy to dive right in. I mean, uh, I have a pretty interesting background. I was a journalist for about two and a half years, uh, mainly at Quartz, where I covered fintech. And I think that's kind of where my interest in crypto got started. I uh, actually covered crypto uh, at Quartz, um, and you know, wrote a lot of stories about. Um, I think one of my favorite stories that I wrote was about explaining like the having event. Uh, Quartz is a pretty mainstream publication, so you know, like making it you know easily, easily, easy to understand and digestible for like a mainstream audience was a pretty interesting challenge. I broke a lot of stories as well. I wrote about um, a bunch of JPM blockchain engineers leaving to start their own startup. I wrote about Nick raising a trying to raise a round for his startup. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, that was uh, that's kind of how I got really interested in crypto. Um, After I was a journalist, I spent the last three years in product. Um, I was a product manager at a company called Acorns, which is a pretty big fintech company, uh, helped on uh, the focus on helping young people kind of save money for the future. Um, Took a little bit of a detour out of uh, the fintech crypto space and was the head of product at a wine e-commerce company for about a year and a half, uh, which is a pretty interesting uh, time. Um, and then, yeah, for the past, uh, I'd say roughly uh, past year and a half, I've been doing product consulting, but mainly, uh, you know, have been focused on fintech today, which is a product and uh, a product and strategy newsletter uh, that's weekly, um, uh, focused on explaining the fintech industry. So mainly for uh, for operators and investors in the fintech space. Um, so, yeah, I've been, uh, you know, kind of around the intersection of technology and finance uh, for, um, you know, about six years now. So uh, I think my interest in crypto kind of stems back from like my, my college days. I was a double major in economics and political science. So was always interested in like how the intersection of, uh, you know, tech, money and uh, regula- regulation and how that how all three kind of intermingled. So, yeah, um, that's kind of my old spiel
1: nice man um so that was, that was a lot that was a lot to uh, <laughs> to grip but I'm, I'm gonna take a stab at it so what first of all for the audience what does a head of product do
0: um a head of product so basically you work with you work uh, across different departments and uh, you know mainly with the engineers and designers to kind of figure out what to build next so um you know making sure that you know the the projects that you're doing are moving smoothly. Making sure that your work at your, you know, when you work at a tech company, there has to be some sort of plan. I think a lot of, uh, you know, crypto companies have really talented product people, like Coinbase, for instance. A lot of product uh, people, and they mainly focus on understanding what the users want want, and you know, translating that to engineers and designers. So that's kind of what I focused on.
1: Let's see. Uh, <laughs> can you hear that movie in the background? Me no. Okay, good. All right. I was wondering for that. I forgot to Depends turn my TV off. in the <laughs> other room. Um, So basically, your your sole, I guess, drive as a head of product is to make sure that all of the non layman vernacular that comes from a war room between engineers and researchers can be digested and and taken in by a layman.
0: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting challenges, right? I think like one of the big problems is that, you know, you can assume people want you to build something, right? But it might it might not actually be what your user wants. So kind of uh, figuring out what your users want and, uh, you know, making sure that uh, it gets done in a timely fashion, right? I think that's really the main focus. Uh, so focusing on like, you know, make like execution and like speed and things like that, but, but also making sure, it's like a high quality project as well. And I mainly focused on like consumer products. So uh, working with uh, companies that have like mainly been catering to like young people, so like millennials, which is a really interesting pro- problem because uh, they've been using these like apps and things like that their entire lives. So the expectations are a little bit higher too.
1: Can we millennials still be considered young? If so, that's great for me, but I still-
0: <laughs> I, w- I honestly think, like, I mainly consider, uh, like, mainly focus on Gen Z now that I think about it. In, like, retrospect, I feel like <laughs> we all, everyone, like, always buckets millennials into, like, this massive, like, 30-year uh, group. But, like, honestly, I probably focus more on uh, Gen Z rather than millennials, which was really interesting because, like, all these kids, like, you know, have been using apps probably since, like, they were in high school or, or probably even earlier. So, making sure you can make a really well designed app that they enjoy using but also gets you know also hits the main metrics for your, the company is really important and really key mm.
1: that's good i don't i don't if if being millennial means that i'm not on tiktok then i'm glad i'll be mm. a millennial i'm okay with that my
0: friends my friends keep trying to get me on it i'm like dude i am not like it's it's past it's past me you know
1: yeah I, I can't i get it i guess dancing with everyone but No, at the same time. Yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) anyways, um. All right, here's a question for you. It's a Uh, doozy. I hope you've never heard it before. You probably have though. If you were the head of product of Bitcoin, what are they fucking up? What are they getting wrong?
0: That's an interesting question, man. I've been I've thought about this a lot over the past years. I think one thing that, uh, I think a lot a lot one thing that Bitcoin companies, especially ones that are focused on like the average consumer, um. They, they don't really explain the value proposition that well. Like, you know, my parents are from India and my family sends money to India pretty regularly. Right. Um, and, you know, when I was explaining to my parents what Bitcoin was, I was like, listen, instead of paying Western union, you know, X, Y, Z dollars in fees. What if I told you, you can pay cents. And they're like, oh yeah, of course we definitely use that. But, you know, things get complicated when you introduce things like uh, private keys and, and, you know, different and, you know, all these, and you know, making it more and more complex. I think, you know, making it simple for the end user can make it much more widely adopted. And uh, I think as I think as a product, I think there's a lot of really interesting uses in in using uh, Bitcoin as like a currency. And and, uh, and I think that's really something that I've thought a lot about, like if, whether there's ways to kind of, you know, just make the entire concept a lot simpler.
1: Yeah, it, you, the, the problem is, though, is that it's kind of like there's a balance there, right? If you make mm-hmm. it simple. Then you're also probably sacrificing some of the sovereignty of your users because, mm-hmm. you know, coin, apps like Coinbase are great, but they're very custodial. Um, yeah. And Gemini, and they're very custodial. So, yeah, it's very smooth to use. And, you know, um, but sorry, my dog is snoring. They're <laughs> uh, very easy to use. Um, but, you know, you sacrifice some of the sovereignty, but okay. So knowing what's from what you just said and Mm -hmm. private keys can be confusing and all the above. So, so, um, does Bitcoin ever move past that hurdle of confusion or does it stay like kind of a niche, uh, toy for, for first movers and early adopters or no, I
0: don't No, I don't think so. I think the value of Bitcoin is pretty profound. I think there's a lot of different ways that it could help people, um, I think one way I think one way that hasn't really been tapped into is like just helping the underbanked and unbanked problem in like the United States. Like there are 40 million people that are, you know, don't have bank accounts in the U.S. The reason is it's because moving money and things like that costs a lot of money, which is weird if you think about it. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, Bitcoin reduces that cost so dramatically. I think there's definitely a ways to kind of tie in uh, crypto into into that into that area and, and reduce a lot of the fees so that you can better serve customers that don't traditionally, that aren't traditionally served by these, you know, banks and institutions. I think there, there is a little bit of a learning curve. And I think there, I think any technology when it's first out, like, I think it goes through like some ups and downs. So I think like that's kind of what we're seeing, but eventually there's going to be a product that, um, exists that like, you know, that sees mainstream adoption. I mean, like it's kind of interesting that, you know, you uh, mentioned Coinbase and, uh, And Gemini is like these, you know, products that are custodial. I think they have kind of reached a a sort of mainstream adoption. But I think like actually using Bitcoin as like a payment method or, you know, for other uses like like things like remittance. I think there's still a large, uh, a large opportunity there, too.
1: I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, So why is fintech? Why is crypto going to be the only thing fintech can talk about for the next ten years? Because we know it's going to happen. I mean, I mean, let's just be honest. But... <laughs> um I
0: it's interesting. <laughs> I I don't. I think there's a. I think it's. I think a, like a Venn diagram. I think there's a middle where that overlaps. But I think like there's always going to be a financial system that is like kind of operates outside of crypto. I think. Uh, I think what you're probably going to end up seeing, and I think this is happening more and more, is with everything going on with COVID is that uh, a lot of companies are looking at like blockchain solutions to, uh, and that that might see a lot of rapid adoption pretty quickly. I kind of separated that out from crypto um, because there's a difference between a digital currency and like the underlying technology, right? Um, mm. But I think, uh, I think for a lot of consumer-facing companies, I think what they'll see is, they need to improve their margins so that a one way to do that, do that is just, you know, reduce costs. Right. So if, if crypto is a really easy way to reduce costs, I think that'll I think that might see some more adoption. And then also, like, you know, if uh, if, you know, countries start adopting digital currency as well, like if that like, you know, I've seen uh, a lot of news reports about China and their digital currency. If that goes if that happens in other countries as well. Then I can definitely see the intersection of crypto and fintech kind of overlapping at a much uh, larger rate, if that makes sense.
1: So, what builds that bridge? And what I mean by that is, and in, in, I guess in traditional finance, you know, I think the best technological advancement they've had is like online banking, maybe, or a credit card, like mobile
0: deposit. Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. I wonder this every day. I'm like, like the biggest, the biggest innovation is probably like. Taking a picture of a check and having that deposit into your account, you
1: know? Yeah, that's that. When I showed that to my mother, I think she thought I was a wizard or something. And I was like, (laughs) why are you putting this on me? This is your banking app. This isn't isn't me. But, you know, is there is there a bridge that's built or is it just like, okay, we're just not going to go that route. We're going to find a way around the ravine. Like, I mean, I almost feel like a bridge has to be built between, you know, old financial technology. And new financial technology, Um, I think.
0: I think. I think that's interesting. I think that. I think it could really. It depends on the country, right? I think like a lot of countries, um, you see, like, like in the U.S., I'd argue that fintech isn't actually that big. Like, we use apps like Venmo and Square Cash all the time, but like, that's been pretty well. In like countries like in Africa that use M-Pesa, that's pretty widely, like, that's pretty popular. You know, uh, technology, right? Just sending money through like SMS. So. I wonder if like I think like because there's a bank branch on every corner, like I think that what we'll end up seeing is that a lot of this sort of like this bridge aspect that you talked about might just be skipped over. And people were like, why why even go help these institutions that are that are just not understanding the change? Like, why don't we just build our own institution and like from the ground up with like all the benefits of a blockchain or a crypto technology can uh, you know, provide?
1: That's very funny that you say that, man. Because that's almost—it almost feels like that's exactly what's happening, at least in the Ethereum community, when you mm-hmm. have decentralized finance and then all these different DeFi applications or dApps, DAP applications yep. that are, um, you know, starting to get pretty, pretty popular. Um, mm-hmm. And then you look at situations now, like I, I hate to keep mentioning Coinbase, but obviously they're a forerunner for a reason. But when I on ramp people, I usually on ramp them to Coinbase because I don't want to take them through like, I'm going to show you how to set up a cold wallet and get an air gapped laptop. It's going to be the fucking tits. (laughs) You're going to love it. No, nobody wants to sit through that. You know, so I'm just like, yo, get a Coinbase app, you know, you know, it's just like a banking app. Get ready. Get, get ready to go. Yeah. And now when I look at my own Coinbase app, I'm just like, wow, there's like, I just push a button and I can get interest on my ether. I can push a button. I get interest on my. Uh, Die and you know it's just it's so easy, but that's like a new financial system that's just being birthed right in front of everyone. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's taking the old, it's like taking the benefits of the old one and applying them to the new one. You know, I think uh, another really interesting company is BlockFi, right? I think they announced uh, a credit card with rewards on top and things like that. I think that has a lot of that might be you know depending on how they go, it could be really interesting if uh, if it. Uh they, I think they just had some news today about how they hired some people from American Express. Like there's a lot of people I know who work in like traditional finance who are really interested in Bitcoin. They just can't talk about it that much, you know.
1: Why? What are, what's what are they scared of?
0: I don't think they're scared of anything. I think uh, they're just I think they're just more like I think they're really eager and they're really interested in the industry, but they're just kind of waiting it out to see if it Like like the question like that you asked earlier, right? Is this something that like you know just stays pretty niche or is this something that gets more mainstream over time i think that's something that they debate a lot um they're they're kind of enthusiasts just like us so like they're kind of they kind of consider themselves in the niche area but i think like a lot of people over the next couple of years are probably going to be migrating towards working at like i mean if like working at like fintech companies or crypto companies you know
1: by the time they get hip it's gonna be too late man you might want to talk some sense into me (laughs) yeah That's There's true. A, that's true. You guys need to get get on the train before everyone else. Uh, but, um, okay. So, uh, you got a newsletter. Um, mm-hmm. all right. Sell me on your newsletter, cause I'm I've been growing. I've I grew up uniquely. Like I was born a little bit before the internet existed, and I was like an older primary school kid when it was like unveiled to the world so i'm like numb to newsletters at this point i've lived through all of the inter- the email scams i know exactly where to click on websites <laughs> to not get viruses uh i know how to add block like i'm i'm internet maestro supreme okay, so keep me from clicking the unsubscribe button on your newsletter
0: yeah, man. So I write in a very like friendly and conversational way. Uh, my favorite part of the newsletter, honestly, is the playlist of the week. I try to make a playlist every week about stuff I'm listening to. I'm super into music, um, so yeah. I mean, honestly, like it started out. Uh, I was doing product consulting. Was kind of just thinking about you know different ways I can kind of get back in writing. I you know been writing since I was probably 17 years old. So like I've been doing it you know for a large part of my life. So. Uh, one thing I realized was that there's so much going on in the fintech industry, and like all these publications that I was reading were like covering it for like old bankers that, like, you know, never, never like, you know, like had always asked, like, what's Venmo? Like, why are you so interested in like Venmo or Square Cash or like all these apps? But like, there's a really big audience of people that I think use these apps daily. And I think one want understand why these companies are doing the things that they're doing and like what's going on in the industry. So like Square, for instance, uh, recently got a bank charter. Like, why does that matter for them? Like, how does that impact uh, like like understanding the product strategy and understanding why companies are doing what they're doing can be really interesting for a lot of people, especially those that work in the industry. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of been the big selling point. You know, we also uh, you know, we have a paid newsletter that my friend uh, Julie Faraj runs. Um, she was the lead fintech reporter at Bloomberg up until March. So she joined us. Um, that's much more like analysis and like in-depth uh, content around what's going on in the fintech industry. Um, like so talking to like, you know, main, like big time investors and big time CEOs like the companies of Chime uh, and, you know, Affirm. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to do a lot more research and analysis and explain like what's interesting in the industry, what's going on and uh, and like trying to keep you up to date so you don't have to. It's only once a week. So, uh, the idea is, you know, we don't want to bother you too much. We want to just keep you up to date on what's going on if you're interested. And uh, that's kind of been the selling point so far.
1: Nice, man. It sounds like something I would definitely be interested in because obviously I like fintech a little bit, just, <laughs> just a little bit. Um, So I, I guess what I'd ask is, as a consultant, you said you did some consulting. Mm-hmm. What was the number one, like, if you went into a situation where someone's product strategy was just way off base what's how did you come how do you come to the conclusion that it's off base like is there a certain line of questioning you use do you uh you know do you you measure them against successful product strategies like how do you walk into the room uh and just own the product strategy yeah. as a consultant That's a, that-
0: That's a great question, man. Um, So I think first off, like definitely using uh, other competitors as a baseline. Like if they're doing, if everyone else is doing like something, and like they're not even anywhere close, then you have to ask why. Um, But the real key for me is always talking to the users. The first thing I do, probably the first week or two, um, is talk to the users and see how the users are, uh, how the users like the app. Um, There's uh, there's two parts of it, right? There's the quantitative where you look at the data. Um, And like the analytics behind like a product or like a website or app and see like, okay, here's what's working, here's what's not. And then also like the qualitative where you interview people um, on a one-to-one basis. So like, it's like me and you talking for about half an hour, just about a specific product and why you like it, what you don't like about it, what improvements you would make, just get your temperature on what you're you're feeling about that. Right. And from there, that's kind of where I can tell, uh, you can, at that point, you probably after you do those two things, you probably have a good idea about, you know, how off base they are or if they're not off base, but what they can improve, improve on. Right. Um, so if they're off base, I think you, those, those are two separate problems. Right. If you're off base and you got to figure out, OK, mm-hmm. why did this company make these decisions and how do they end up here? Right. And what's going wrong? Um, I think a lot of companies, a lot of companies, especially like ones that are, you know, have raised a good amount of money, a couple million from VCs. They're like, oh, we know exactly what our customers want. We know exactly what they need. Like, we're just going to build this and without talking to them at all. And I think that's always a recipe for a disaster because at the end of the day, like, you know, um, you are just not going to be able to know what, unless it's hard to put yourself in hundred percent in the shoes of the user. Right. Um, so I think, you know, just reinforcing that is a really, really big, uh, big factor. And then if you're, if you're lucky enough to work at a company that's not off base and like doing stuff that's working really well then you got to figure out, all right, you got to kind of almost kind of read the future a little bit and be like, all right, what do these customers need next, right? Like, uh, and luckily in finance, there's a trajectory, right? Like if you're, if you're, uh, if you're targeting like people in college, they eventually get a credit card and they eventually get a mortgage and all this kind of stuff. So you can kind of, kind of figure out that path. Um, uh, If you're in other products, you can kind of Uh, suss out what exactly they're interested in and like what they want next from your product and kind of, you know, test it. You can build like a lightweight version and, you know, if it doesn't and like release it and if it doesn't work out, you can always roll it back and like delete it basically uh, if it works and you can kind of build on top of that. So that's that's usually how the product process goes for me. Mm.
1: We need more of you in the crypto community, (laughs) I think. They just missed the, man, they just missed the mark on a lot. I've been, I've fortunate enough to have been, uh, a member of this community for a long time, mm-hmm. and interviewed anyone and everyone. And a lot of times they missed the mark. I will say it's gotten better. A lot mm-hmm. of companies that are building on top of, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology are doing a lot better. But man, it's been rough. It's been rough for a while. So
0: what played is the, with some enough, I mean, what do you think is, uh, what do you think is one of the big things that they're missing? Um. Don't mean to turn. Don't mean to turn around on you. No,
1: <laughs> no, that's a great question. It's something that I've talked to many times in the past, and there's nothing that's uniquely clean. There's nothing that's uniquely chaining my mind and my body to how to behave with blockchain technology. There's nothing easy, like for example, um, the act of logging in and out. AOL mm-hmm. solved that. And they made it cool with the, you got mail. And then you go and you look in your email and then you know, okay, I now have to sign into some thing, some network, some portal, some to get access to something. And that mm-hmm. kind of trained people. And now scrolling, I think, I think social media has kind of trained us the never ending scroll of yep. life. Like there's no user experience or interface so far. I think you say interface before experience, but I don't know. Uh, that basically makes me understand that I'm interacting with blockchain technology. There's yeah. nothing yet. It's all just more of the same. And if people would go with more of the same, they're like, well, I'm not going to go with more of the same that's dangerous to use, kind of, because I could lose my money or my tokens. I'm going to go with more of the same with this Venmo app, which is wild anyways. I don't, if you, can you help me understand one thing? Why are people, telling people what they paid other people on venmo
0: dude i I have no idea i don't (laughs) i keep my transactions transactions private i feel like so i i know the early team at venmo a lot like pretty well they're all i'm i'm in new york uh and like uh, they they were headquartered in new york for a while um so what they told me was that they they kind of started out as a as an app that uh, was just for like them and their friends. So that what they were they were like paying each other for drinks and like rent and, and stuff like that. So uh, they kind of just uh, that's that actually was a huge huge factor in their growth because they were seeing like oh this person paid this person I should add that person and then like next time we get drinks like I can pay them back via Venmo and like th- that actually was a huge uh, big feature for them. Now it's getting in a lot of trouble um, because they're so mainstream. Everyone's like. Uh, oh like you know and privacy is such a big deal now i think they started 10 years ago they're 10 year they're they're mm-hmm. pretty old company so um when they started out privacy wasn't as big of a factor now it's definitely changed so uh a lot of people are like oh we don't want to share our information on venmo so they they change the app around a little bit so they make it really easy for you to hide your transactions and stuff like that i've always defaulted to that so um, yeah, it's, i do it's, it, it's kind of funny but Apparently, it was a big deal for them and uh, and was a, was a big reason that they grew so quickly in, in the early days.
1: Yeah, I think the older the user base gets, it's like, I paid 275000 for a house. And it's like, wait, <laughs> I'm not going to tell anybody that. Shit. Yeah. Um,
0: I don't but, want people to see how much they rent. You know, it's, it's New York prices. <laughs> it's absurd.
1: Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> that's not what I want to do. But um, I guess to finish answering your question it's it's that i think there's no unique design or interface or experience that helps me understand i'm doing something new mm-hmm. there's, you know I, I don't know what that is off the top of my head maybe it's like clicking buttons in a certain way maybe it's um you know honestly i just don't maybe know just baking,
0: maybe just baking uh these crypto services into other products right like i think like they're you know i think like one thing that you know i've been seeing on like some early fintech companies is that they've been like kind of these these fintech products are pretty boring at the end of the day like how many debit cards do you need you know what i mean so i think a lot of companies are trying to figure out how else can we in like f- find users and like and build products that like they find interesting and then get them to use a debit card later on maybe it's the same thing for crypto too
1: yeah yeah that w- that would be one thing that'd be something um there's there's things that are starting to pop up like MetaMask mm-hmm. kind of gets it. Like if you go to a Web3 enabled website, you'll see your MetaMask pop up, which is kind of yeah. neat. Um, it it is kind of neat. And then if you had to like you have to click over there to kind of log in with MetaMask, that that is kind of a new experience. I think mm-hmm. what the the bit the biggest new experience that Ether stands to to gain is the universal login that they're working on. Yeah. And if you just imagine never needing to log in anywhere on the internet, but also you could secure your identity at the same time, like that's going to change a lot. So yeah, I but um, I think I'm all out of questions, man. Is there Yo, anything is I should great. have asked you that I didn't?
0: What was that? Um, I mean, uh, we talked a, we talked a pretty good amount about like the convergence of fintech and crypto. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of I think the future is going to be really interesting in terms of the combination between the two. And it's going to be interesting to see which FinTech products take blockchain and use blockchain and and use crypto inside their products. Um, So I'm definitely eager to kind of see how that plays out.
1: Yeah. Well, Ian, thank you so much for stopping by. We have one last trademark question In 10 words or less. Can you describe Bitcoin?
0: I think I can. All right. Um, It's a currency that's not owned by anyone shit i don't know how uh um, that's 5
1: you're good wait are um, you still going it's...
0: yeah uh <laughs> and yeah i get. i guess that i mean i was gonna say and lets you uh make transactions uh cheaply and and easily but like mm. that's a lot of work it got a thirteen.
1: It was at five and then it ballooned the thirteen. I think
0: I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna cut the first part and just say it's a it's a currency that lets you make cheap and easy transactions.
1: Okay, that's seven. Don't let All Roger right. Bear hear you say that.
0: <laughs>
1: All right. Well, thank you, Ian. All right, man. Uh, thank
0: you so much.